Hello, I'm John Rossi, a touring drummer with a love of all things animal. When I'm on the road, I visit as many zoos, aquariums. Hey, wait a minute. What's going on? Hey, what's going on there? Hello? Hello? We interrupt your regularly scheduled program to bring you Rossafari Zoo News. News you can use from the world of zoos and conservation. Every week, we bring you breaking news and analysis from around the globe, featuring the animals you love and the people who care for them. And here's your anchorman, John Rossi. Hello, 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 and welcome to another episode of Rossafari Zoo News. News about the world of conservation, zoos, aquariums, and all that cool stuff. And, uh, you know, one of my favorite features, which has been coming up more and more, Idiots doing dumb stuff at zoos, but hey, don't worry, we'll get there. So a quick reminder, if you are willing to help me with the creation of this type of episode, you can tag me in Zoo News Stories. It's at Ross Safari on Facebook and Instagram, and I'm sure you know that because you're already following along and not missing a single moment of the adventure over there. And you can also email me stories at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Want to thank everybody who's done that so far. It's really making Zoo News a lot easier for me and also really helping with the uh, just the community feeling. The, the Rossafari community is really important to me. And I love that so many of y'all are invested in this uh, Zoo News effort that I'm undertaking. And speaking of community, one thing about conservation that I absolutely love is the sense of community amongst conservationists and zoo people who, you know, are conservationists. Anyway, I wanted to take a moment with that in mind to give a shout out to my friend Brooke, who runs the Rewildology podcast. Now, Brooke has been interviewed on this podcast and also interviewed me on hers, and you can get that as a bonus episode here as well. But if you have not checked out Rewildology yet, now is the time. You see, Brooke recently went to Nepal, and she did a series of interviews there that are incredible. The series is called Nepal, Coexisting with the Giants, and it's in its fourth episode right now. The current episode deals with red panda conservation and black bear conservation in Nepal. In fact, one of her guests is not only a member of the team at Red Panda Network, but somebody that I'm also currently working on a different project with. More on that soon. Anyway, the entire series has been absolutely incredible, as is the Rewildology podcast in general. So take a minute, give Brooke a follow, and uh, trust me, you're going to love what you hear. But only do that after you listen to this episode. I mean, I love Rewildology and all, but come on, priorities, people. And that brings us to... Zoo News, Zoo News. It's the news that's about Zoo, Zoo News. Whoa, 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 whoa. Zoo News. And our first story today in Zoo News is uh, relating to a show that I've never actually watched for obvious reasons, Tiger King. So it turns out that federal officials have seized 68 big cats from Jeff and Lauren Lowe, who were on the show. Tiger King Park in Oklahoma is the facility that these two own, and since December of 2020, officials have inspected it numerous times and have issued multiple citations for failure to properly care for the animals. Seven lions, 46 tigers— 
15 ligers and one jaguar were recovered from the, quote, zoo. I really hate even using that word because that's not what they are, at least not in the sense that we like to use it on this podcast. The citations that the couple faced included failing to provide the animals with adequate or timely veterinary care, appropriate nutrition, and shelter that protects them from inclement weather and is of sufficient size to allow them to engage in normal behavior, according to the Justice Department. Many of the animals were actually found to have bone disorders because of calcium deficiency because they've been eating boneless and ground meat, according to officials. Furthermore, the officials said that the Lowe's harassed government workers during inspections, with Mrs. Lowe at one point even threatening to actually kill one of the wildlife officials. Uh, not great. And especially bad because one of their business partners, who was also mentioned on Tiger King, is serving a prison sentence for hiring a hitman to assassinate a business rival in another state. And y'all, this is why I did not watch Tiger King. Just what I know about it absolutely disgusts me. I'm so glad that these cats are off to sanctuaries that will help them live the best possible lives that they can after the torture they have received from the Lowe's. Now for my favorite, least favorite kind of story on here, which from now on will be known as the stupid and lucky story. That is because those are the words that the director of the El Paso Zoo, whose name is Joe Montesano, used when describing a woman who trespassed into the zoo's spider monkey enclosure. Seriously, y'all. Let me, let me set the, the stage for you here. She had to climb a fence, make her way through a bunch of bushes, and then wade through about four foot deep water to get to where the spider monkeys live. This is not a case of a zoo being ill-prepared for a person being stupid, but is a case of a person being incredibly dedicated to their stupidity. So what did this young lady, whose name I will not mention because I don't want to give her any fame, do when she got over to the monkeys? Was she an activist, an anti-zoo person? Was she just a primate lover who couldn't help herself? Nope. Her mission was to feed them some flaming hot Cheetos. Keep in mind... Not only could this have been dangerous for the woman because primates are strong and can play with uh, a lot of force behind it and can also be scared and just attack, but it was also not safe for the animals. Not only could it have scared and traumatized them, but also primates are known to be susceptible to COVID-19. We don't know what was going on with this lady. This was the dumbest thing I have read about all week, which is saying something, y'all, because I read political news regularly. This story actually has two happy endings, though. First of all, the monkeys seem fine. And second of all, the person in question's employer saw the video, recognized her, and fired her butt. The Lovett Law Firm terminated her employment after seeing the video, saying that they do not condone the behavior and that they are supporters of the El Paso Zoo. Good call, y'all. Good call. Maybe that'll teach her to not monkey around, eh? Eh? No? All right. So, I recently did an interview featuring AMZAP, the Association of Minority Zoo and Aquarium Professionals. Now the AZA has launched ZAP, which is something completely different. The AZA has launched the Zoo and Aquarium All Hazards Partnership, Z-A-A-H-P. Y'all, the zoo acronyms are really getting out of hand here. 
But I digress because this is actually really cool. The seed of this partnership started all the way back in 2015 when the H5N1 bird flu was spreading across Asia. The U.S. Department of Agriculture, or USDA, approached the Lincoln Park Zoo in Chicago to ask them to help prepare the community for a possible zoonotic pandemic. In the same year, Hurricane Katrina hit the Gulf states and absolutely ravaged them which made the USDA look into many things, including wondering whether zoos and aquariums were actually prepared for dealing with emergencies, such as zoonotic disease or natural disasters. They quickly realized that the answer was, kinda. It turned out that facilities that had pre-disaster action plans in place did a really great job both with handling the disaster and recovering afterwards. But many zoos did not have these plans in place, especially the non-accredited zoos. Though the project was started by the USDA, it moved to the AZA in 2014, and they really made an effort to reach out to non-accredited facilities. And y'all, this is where this story gets really cool. ZAP is an information hub for various emergency scenarios that absolutely can be used by any zoo or aquarium, whether they are members of the AZA or not. In the end, it's all about taking the best care possible of all of the animals that are in captivity. Ashley Zielinski, the program director of ZAP, said that ZAP is a safe space where everyone can get to the root of issues. We have these animals in our care, and we all want to enhance our ability to protect them. We're constantly trying to make inroads and be welcoming. And, you know, I personally really love that. Y'all know that I am a huge fan of the AZA, and most, though not all, of the facilities that I feature on this podcast are AZA accredited. That being said... One time when speaking to somebody who owns a zoo that is not accredited at all, they told me that they had no desire to join the AZA, not because they disagreed with any of their animal handling policies, but because it feels like an old boys club to them. There are a lot of parts of membership that this person doesn't agree with that have nothing to do with animal care. I'm certainly not looking to debate that topic. I love the AZA. I'm cool with it. But the fact that this group exists, that ZAP is there for even people who feel that way, is really incredible to me and does a great job illustrating just how much the AZA really cares about taking care of all animals, not just saying, hey, you got a membership card? No, get out. I really love that story. And now for a couple of exciting stories out of the Smithsonian's National Zoo in Washington, D.C. First of all, hey, the zoo's open again. If you've been paying attention, you know that the National Zoo has not reopened since the initial shutdown at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. It is finally open to the public again, and everyone needs to get timed tickets, including special timed tickets if you want to go on the Asia Trail. Which, of course, you do because, along with seeing the adorable red pandas there, including new-to-the-zoo panda Chris Ann, you can also see Xiao Shi Ji, the Smithsonian Zoo's newest giant panda cub. And he's officially out making his public debut on Friday. He is adorable, y'all. 
Visitors can expect long lines if they want to see Shaoxiji, because uh, of course they can. It's a panda, and the Smithsonian is limiting the number of people that can go in at one time to mitigate COVID concerns. By the way, his name means Little Miracle, which is just adorable. Despite revenue being down because of the zoo being closed for the last year, the zoo is still free. However, parking at the zoo has been raised to $30 a car. Memberships do include free parking, though, so are very worth it if you go regularly. Many giant panda fanatics snapped up tickets the second they became available because the cub already weighs 45 pounds and looks more like a normal panda bear than the cub that you would see when it first pops out, which is often referred to as a little stick of butter. And that's not the only cool news about a baby at the National Zoo. Turns out that black-footed ferret mom Pot Pie gave birth on the Smithsonian's black-footed ferret cam. You can actually watch the footage of the three kits being born. Now, to be clear, these are not ferrets that live at the zoo, but they live at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute in Fort Royal, Virginia, which is another Smithsonian facility that we've talked about on the pod before. You can head to nationalzoo.si.edu to witness video of the birth, and also to keep up with the live happenings in the den as Pot Pie raises her three adorable kits. And now for the weirdest sentence that I'm going to say this whole episode, probably. An unathletic alligator with terrible arthritis escaped and then returned to a Harley-Davidson dealership outside of St. Louis. Turns out that if you go to Doc's Harley-Davidson in Bondool, Wisconsin, you can not only get your new hog or get custom upgrades or other motorcycle stuff. I'm really not a motorcycle or car guy, y'all. But you can also go to Doc's Zoo, which is a free 28-acre, very not accredited zoo that is at this dealership. And one of the animals that you can see at the zoo is Rex the alligator. That was not true this past weekend, though, as Rex escaped his enclosure on Saturday and was not found and returned back to it until Monday. The alligator is very old and has severe arthritis in his jaws, making it difficult for him to open his mouth more than about an inch. He also has a really hard time moving well, so how he escaped is a mystery. None of the other four alligators in the enclosure escaped, nor was anyone there able to figure out how an alligator may have gotten out of the exhibit. Zoo staff has installed video cameras around the enclosure to make sure that Rex, nor any of the other alligators, are able to escape again. My guess is that after seeing one too many pairs of alligator boots, Rex realized he had to do something about it and got himself out of there. Amusingly, he was found on a pond at the edge of the property of the zoo, so it's not like he went on a huge adventure, but uh, I hope Rex had a good time in his brief liberation. And for my final zoo news story this week, a single wild snake caused a lot of drama at the new zoo in Wisconsin. Some zoo guests went to the vending machines to get some soda or water and saw a snake slithering, either in or out, there's some confusion about this, and snapped a picture showing it to zoo staff. The guests were concerned that it was an exhibit snake that had gotten off exhibit, but that was not the case. It was a hognose or a fox snake, two snakes that are local to the area that the new zoo is located in. 
Now, I love what I call bonus animals, which is any time that you see natural snakes or frogs or birds or anything like that at a zoo. Bunnies hopping around a zoo are adorable. So are squirrels and chipmunks. They should stay out of the lion exhibit, though. In this case, the vending machines were checked, no snakes were found, and the story should have ended. But it didn't. Because Facebook. Somebody took the picture and ran with it, saying that it was a pregnant mama snake that was giving birth to baby snakes in the machine that would then attack people trying to get sodas or waters. This was posted on numerous parenting groups, and people freaked out. Clearly, this is not what was happening. Clearly, the new zoo did not lose any snakes to their vending machines— nor were there any pregnant snakes, nor any snakes at all in the vending machines, except for the one that was seen briefly and is not harmful at all. Seriously, guys, calm down. Don't believe everything you read on Facebook. But do believe that if it had been a snake that could hurt you, it would have been a venomous snake, not a poisonous snake. There is no such thing as a poisonous snake. And that's your bonus extra info in today's Zoo News. And now, conservation, conservation, news time. Oh, yeah. We start off conservation news this week with an incredibly exciting story, one that hasn't been able to be reported in more than 3,000 years. And I can tell you, the podcasts back then were not nearly as professional sounding as Rasafari is. Anyway... Seven Tasmanian devil joeys have been born in the wild on mainland Australia, marking the first time that joeys have been born on the mainland in over 3,000 years. An incredible organization I just found out about called Aussie Ark has had a Tasmanian devil breeding program for the last 10 plus years, and it is the most successful conservation breeding facility for devils on mainland Australia. When it was founded, the program had 44 individuals and now has more than 200, which is roughly half of the mainland insurance population in Australia. In total, Aussie Ark has seen the birth of almost 400 devils, and they raise them to foster natural behaviors, hoping that they will be able to release them into the wild. The releases take place in the Barrington Wildlife Sanctuary, where the devils are truly left to live their own lives. However, they are watched and tracked, and this is the first time that Aussie Ark has actually seen joeys born. This would be an incredible achievement, even without the devil facial tumor disease that is ravaging the population that you've heard about on Raw Safari already. And if you haven't, just give it a quick Google search. You'll be amazed at how bad this contagious cancer is. Efforts like this will hopefully help Tasmanian devils avoid extinction, the same fate that was met by the Tasmanian tiger, also known as the thylacine. So many bonus facts today. You know... I love sharing conservation success stories, but sometimes a really successful conservation story brings with it, um, let's say, some side effects that are unexpected and can create new challenges for the growing population. That's what's happening with mountain gorillas right now. Wild mountain gorillas currently live in fully protected national parks in Rwanda, Uganda, and DR Congo. And these national parks are not able to expand outward anywhere because they have dense human communities that live nearby. 
As these gorilla population densities have increased in the protected areas, so too has their susceptibility to disease. A study published in Scientific Reports that was worked on by the Institute of Vertebrae Technology, Czech Academy of Sciences, University of Veterinary Sciences Borneo, Czech Republic, Gorilla Doctors, and the Diane Fossey Gorilla Fund concluded that parasite infections are at an alarming rate amongst the mountain gorillas in these areas. A parasitic worm, known as a helminth, is transferring at an alarming rate and causing gastrointestinal diseases in the gorillas, which could hurt and even kill them. In the past, helminth infestations were asymptomatic, but with the larger population density, it seems that the effects of the worm on the gorillas are changing as well. Fortunately, the gorillas in question are not only in a protected forest, but also have veterinary care available to them, which will lead to further studies on the effects of the helmets and also how to best help the gorillas overcome this problem. However, it does bring up a really interesting point for conservationists, which is that even a successful reintroduction that shows great population growth can have unintended consequences and side effects. This is one reason why it's incredibly important that population studies continue after reintroductions, even when they are deemed successful. And that's often harder to find funding for. I remember I was once talking to my friend and former guest Tiffany James. If you haven't heard her episode, go back and find it. She is amazing. Anyway, we were discussing gorilla reintroductions, and uh, I was talking to her about how I thought that would be so amazing to see happen on a large scale. And she just looked at me sadly and said, where would we put them? It really took me back because I was so focused on the science of gorillas and gorilla conservation and gorilla mating and all that good stuff that I kind of forgot that we've destroyed much of their homeland. And I guess that's the moral of this story. We found a place to put them, but it's not necessarily a place that can accommodate their current population density without causing additional issues. I'm just so grateful that gorillas are such an amazing species and so beloved, so charismatic, that there are all kinds of awesome groups working to keep an eye on this population and help them overcome the problem they're facing now. It just never ceases to amaze me how much goes into conservation beyond, hey, let's save some animals. And finally in conservation news this week, a fish species is providing some insight on how, when looking at conservation, you might need to look beyond the species level. Hey, remember how when I was talking about the alligator, I said I was about to tell you the weirdest sentence I was going to say all episode? Well, I might top it right now. Did you know that there is a fish called stonesuckers, which are known for their use in fish spas, where they nibble away the dead skin of visitors' feet? Well, now you do. It turns out that these fish are actually found in six different locations around the island of Sri Lanka. And despite the fact that they are considered one species, and they all look and act and seem exactly the same, they are all different genetically. This is really important to understand because should an effort be made to conserve these fish, which are considered near-threatened and are also taken out of the wild because of the foot spas in massive numbers, as well as for the pet trade, thanks humans, the question becomes, do you need to preserve the species or do you need to preserve all six individual genetic groupings therein? Now look, y'all. 
I'm not a taxonomist, and if you've listened to any episodes of this podcast, you have probably heard me whining about how weird taxonomy gets. After all, it's an imperfect system designed by humans to help humans understand things that happen in nature, despite the fact that nature does not care about the taxonomical terms that we use to define things. I say that to admit that I don't really understand why we can have six completely different genetic populations in one species. I guess I think back to my episode with the paleontologist Dr. Stephen Wallace, who pointed out to me that evolution is a race. It's a battle. It's always ongoing. And I guess that can be extended to say that our understanding of species-level things is also always changing and ongoing. I mean, heck, look at red pandas. Knew I'd get them in there somewhere, didn't you? Red pandas were thought to be one species for an incredibly long period of time and are now believed to be two species because of genetic analysis. So while we think that these fish are one species right now, we now have genetic analysis that says that they are six different groups. Maybe down the line we'll think of them as six different species. And if so, we don't want to be combining those genetics when we try to conserve them. We want to save the different genetic populations, whether we call them one species or all the species. And I think that's the takeaway from this study. When we look at conservation efforts, we often think about saving one particular species. But do we always understand exactly what that species is? Genetics are the wave of the present and the future, and it's really important that we make sure that we're taking the time to not only make sure there is a genetically diverse population in the species that we are trying to save, but also that we manage to not combine genetically different populations of what we now consider the same species. And that brings us to... A team of scientists, including marine biologists, experts in linguistics, robotics, machine learning, and camera engineering, are all teaming up to try to decode whale language, literally trying to make it so that humans can understand the, quote, words that whales are clicking at each other. The study is going to rely heavily on recent advances in AI, or artificial intelligence, which is now able to translate one human language to another without any help from a key, including a Rosetta Stone. Project SETI, for Cetacean Translation Initiative, is the largest interspecies communication effort in history. It is believed that whale communication is not just the series of clicks that we all have seen in videos, but is also based on the movements of their bodies and even the distance between the two speaking whales. Going into the project, the team already has thousands of recordings of whale song, but are planning on capturing millions more and using video to make sure that they get all of the physical elements of the language as well. The hope is that cutting-edge AI that learns, similar to the stuff that we have with Siri and Alexa that kind of learn how we talk and how we ask for things, will be able to interpret what the whales are saying and doing towards each other. Couple this with the linguistics programs and the linguists that are going to be there, and you are going to have an unprecedented approach to understanding the language of a different species. It is my secret hope that the first message that we ever decode simply says, so long, and thanks for all the fish. And if you don't get that, you definitely need to read The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy by Douglas Adams.
I always enjoy sharing stories about the positives of COVID-19 because, let's face it, we don't need to hear much more about the negatives. And here's a good one. Exotic animal consumption is down roughly 30%, according to Time magazine, as people have become aware of zoonotic diseases such as COVID-19. Many countries, including China, have passed many new strict laws forbidding the sale of exotic animals for any reasons other than certain medicinal ones. Along with laws changing, it seems that individual attitudes to wildlife are also changing. In a recent study by the World Wildlife Fund, many people said that they believed that they need to be more in harmony with nature to avoid future diseases such as COVID. Hey, if COVID is the thing that helps humans remember that we are a part of nature and that we need to live in harmony with the rest of nature, you know, it may all have been worth it. Probably doesn't seem like that right now, but it may have been worth it. And that brings us to your animal holidays for the week. We only have a couple this week. May 28th is Whooping Crane Day. I was mostly excited because I like saying Whooping Crane. May 29th is Pink Flamingo Day, so all other flamingos can stay away. May 31st is World Parrot Day, and you know I'm going to be thinking about my little buddy Ernie all day. And last but not least, June 4th is National Hug Your Cat Day. So on June 4th, make sure you hug your cat, unless your name is Jeff or Lauren Lowe, in which case you can't, because all 68 of your big cats have been seized. Suck it! And those are your animal holidays for the week. All right, friends. Well, thank you for hanging with me for this week's Zoo News. I hope y'all enjoyed it. I want to take a minute to say thank you to Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross and Dr. Natalie Taco, who provided me with a bunch of cool stories this week. And I also have to say thanks to Elizabeth Dunlevy, who not only shared a story with me, but had some really fun conversations with me about it. And Kim Cooley, who always comes through with the weird stories about people jumping into animal enclosures. Kim, I don't know why you love those stories so much, but I love that you do, and I love that you share them with me. So please, if you see any newsworthy zoo or conservation stories, send them to me, rossafaripod at gmail.com, or tag me in them, at rossafari on Instagram and Facebook. And remember, y'all, Newsy Credits Backwards is Yaswin Steiderk. The Rossafari Podcast is produced, hosted, and engineered by John Rossi. Editing and fact-checking by John and Dr. Zoe Vesley-Gross. Our theme song is Sevens by Nathan Burke, performed by Nathan and John. Interrupting John theme and additional voices by Taylor Isaac Gray. You can reach John directly on Instagram and Facebook at Rossafari or by email at rossafaripod at gmail.com. Rossafari is part of the Daydreamer Media Network. Now, stop listening to me and go visit a zoo.